I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today, as ever, I am joined by my co-host Joe in London. I'm here in LA. We are both delighted to be in the company, albeit virtually, of another fantastic guest for this episode. He's a prolific writer and actor, well known for a role on the legendary TV show EastEnders, as well as his one-man show stage performance of Fever Pitch, not to mention many appearances on the silver screen too. On the literary scene, he's written quite a few books, typically concerning our favourite subject, football. If that's not enough, which it definitely is, I'm particularly excited about the fact that he's also a fellow gooner. We welcome Tom Watt to the United Mates Football Podcast. Tom, it is a pleasure to have you with us, and how are you doing today? Yeah, delighted to be with you, yeah. Yeah, don't don't call me a gooner, I'm not a gooner. I'm an Arsenal supporter, or have been. Uh, we'll see about that but uh, yeah Gunas is a weird thing you know back in the day that meant something very different to how people mean it today Um, and I never was then really and I certainly am not now well I'm learning new things already and I think we're going to learn a few new things as we as we go on about Tom hopefully but Joe my co-host together we are proving that Misery certainly does love company as far as an Arsenal fan and a Spurs (laughs) fan making a podcast together things could probably be better for both of our clubs at the minute, uh, even as we speak, Joe, your manager or ex-manager, I should say, Mourinho has just been sacked. But I suppose, Joe, how are you doing otherwise? Yeah, I mean, it's it's sunny in London today, so that's all positive and nice. But yeah, the, this European Super League's just been announced. Uh, it all feels quite depressing football right now. But, you know, we're going to crack on and hopefully this league just won't happen. But um, Tom, thanks for joining us today. And when we... Um, that's all right. I'll tell you, you should... Um... You should keep your chin up, you know, because there's a genuinely great man going to be coaching the team for the cup final. Chris Powell is one of the really, really great people in football. In fact, I sent him a message today to say, blimey, if you're in charge, I might even have to support Spurs this weekend. I just think the world of the bloke um, compared to the other fella who's who's on his way. Um, Chris Powell, obviously, long term, is not going to be Spurs new manager but um he's a great person to have at any football club a real sort of um you know I've, I've got to know Chris quite well over the years particularly well he's a at Charlton both as a player and as a manager and he is a great man to have around your football club certainly and he, he's a Spurs fan as well so I think we'll take oh, absolutely well that's why we get on so well because we just slag each other off all the time <laughs> do you know what I mean it's it's, a, it, it's absolutely a relationship built on insults um, and that'll do for me. That's that's what football is for me. It's my lot against your lot. Exactly. Yeah, Kaito and I know that very well. But um, yeah, on our, on our podcast, we always start with an icebreaker question for our guests. So um, we've got one for you, Tom. Um, and today's mm. question is, as you've been in productions of Sherlock Holmes, both on TV and in film... Um, what unsolved mystery, serious or trivial, would you like to crack? So an example that I would give would be trying to sort out the, the Lord Lucan mystery. Did he end up in South Africa? Did he... Yeah. Well, okay. So what, what about you, Tom? What, what mystery would you like to solve that is currently unsolved? I'd really like to know what happened with Mesut Ozil. <laughs> I'd really like to know. Because I think that kind of... There's stuff in there that just, I think that's a kind of spider's web of an inquiry, and I would love to know what actually happened there. God, yeah, what what a mystery that is. Um, he's in, yeah, Turkey these days, isn't he, with Fenerbahce? But um, Kai, how about you? What what unsolved mystery are you going to try and crack? Nothing as kind of serious as, as either of yours. <laughs> Mine's definitely a little bit more of a small fry issue, but as a dog owner, I've always wanted to know what the digging is all about when it comes to bedtime. My pup Zeus, who's actually in the room with me, he might make an appearance later, is a very aggressive digger and scratcher of the bed sheets. 
when it's time for him to lie down. I don't know if it's like a equivalent of like a dream catcher situation. He's trying to ward off like bad cat and postman spirits or something. But as, as of for now, that remains unsolved, I guess. But moving on to a bit more football chat. And Tom, I read that you grew up within walking distance of the old Highbury. And so beyond Arsenal being your local club, they certainly wouldn't have been the trophy winning powerhouse that I came to know and love during my childhood under Wenger. So what was it in particular that you loved about the Arsenal of your youth? Where did the romance come from? Um, well, it's funny you say, apart from it being my local club. Now, that, that's pretty much it. It was my local club. Um, I grew up 20 minutes from Highbury, 20 minutes from the Emirates, in fact. In fact, that was the, the single best thing about the building of Emirates Stadium was the fact that nobody had to change anything else. You know, they had to go to a new ground, but didn't have to change anything else because the two places are next door to each other. Um, and then I was lucky, I guess, because I started watching probably, you know, arguably the worst Arsenal team since the move to Ivory. I mean, I think there were days in Plumstead that were pretty grim, but despite what my son says, I wasn't around for those. Um, but definitely the mid-60s was, uh, you know, but I only, unlike the people I was standing next to, the old geezers who I was standing next to, who were grumbling about it's now 17 years, it's now 18 years since we won anything. I only had to wait kind of three or four years. And suddenly, you know, I started watching in the mid 60s. And by the end of the 60s, you know, we were winning European competitions, we were doing the double, um, and kind of you sort of spent the rest of your footballing life really thinking, I'm really glad I grew up around the corner from this stadium rather than any other. Um, so I had a really, really good kind of shot of it. So it was. It was the local thing was what mattered. Um, the dads and lads thing was what mattered. And that's significant now because I have that going on with my son now. Um, in fact, when it comes to Premier League football, that's about all I've got going on. Do you know what I mean? If it wasn't for the dads and lads thing, I probably wouldn't bother at all now. Mm. But, um, you know, that was, it was local. Me and my dad, me, you know, my dad was a, a school teacher. So he was busy during the day, busy in the evenings. But Saturday afternoon, we walk down the Arsenal um, and spend countless afternoons in each other's company. Do you know what I mean? So that was a big deal. And then four or five years later, suddenly we're the kind of, you know, we're the team. We're the team. Uh, you know, when I started watching, obviously the other lot down the road had done the double in 60, uh, 61 and then won the cup the following season and, you know, won the fairs. We were kind of the the saps from down the road and then suddenly all that turned on its head 10 years later and basically it's been that way ever since long may it continue <laughs> oh dear if only i'd been around back then i'm sure i would have enjoyed it more than well we've been okay in recent times but anyway tom as, as you were saying um you grew up near highbury um eventually arsenal actually ended up being quite good but um i understand you actually um went up to Manchester for university and Manchester's obviously a bit of a football hub in the north of England so what did you make of the football culture in Manchester when you were studying there? Well um, I uh, when I went to football in Manchester I went to City because it was closer it was nearby funny enough when I went for my interview you know the interview for uh, uh, to go to Manchester University funny enough that as it happened, that same weekend, Arsenal were away at Man United. So, of course, I went to the game. But, but no, I, I, I used to hitchhike from Manchester to London every two weeks for every home game. And then I kind of I, I, I hooked up with a, a mate, another Arsenal supporter. And he had um, incredibly, I mean, must, untold wealth in the family, presumably. He had a beat-up old Morris Marina. So, not only when I went to Manchester to go to university, I probably watched more Arsenal than I ever had before. So I'd hitchhike home every weekend to watch the Arsenal at home because I had a season ticket by then, you know, long since. I got, me and my old man got season tickets in 71 after we did the double. And then um, me and Pete, we'd jump in his marina and every away game north of Birmingham, we'd go to. So, you know, it... it, it the football culture in Manchester, I don't know, really. I mean, you know, I went to City every now and again, which was a very strange place in those days. I mean, that was just, basically, the kickbacks was just kind of, it was sort of there to watch football, and it was sort of there just to do drug dealing, really. I mean, there, there's so many people out 
absolutely off their trolleys there that you'd have this weird um, delay at, at City after any incident in the game, there'd be a kind of delay before a reaction because uh, so many people on the Kipax were so out of it. So it was, um, that, you know, that was, um, I, could, I could walk to Rush Home and walk to Main Road. Um, so that was where I went to watch football, if I went to watch football in Manchester. But between Arsenal home games and, and Arsenal away games with Pete in his Morris Marina, I didn't have, uh, I didn't have all that much time. Interesting to hear that the old city ground, I guess, was like sort of seemingly in the crowds, like an opium den and then like a football game going on in the background. To be fair, they had had a really, you know, this is obviously after the, the great days of Belby and Summerby and that, you know, title winning. But they still had a, you know, they were, it was still a, a big and important club and um, in, in the old ways we used to define that. And um, so it was... It was a good place to go and watch football, and they they always tried to play it. Um, but it, it was, um, yeah, and and you know you're around the corner from all the curry you could eat and rush home after after the game. So it was it was a good Saturday afternoon out. See, yeah, it sounds like a nice day out. Obviously, City now at the Etihad, marching towards the Premier League and maybe even a, a Champions League, and definitely a Carabao Cup because that's kind of their customary trophy to win. And it's in my interest for them to beat Spurs. So fingers crossed. Uh, we've got a bit of a quick game lined up, uh, Tom, and it's in honour of your celebrated role in EastEnders as Lofty, the barman at the Queen Vic, and we're going to be paying homage to Arsenal Football Club's infamous Tuesday Club of the 90s. So now that lockdown has been truly lifted, for now at least, and you know we're allowed to go out to the pubs again, or at least you guys are over there, get together with family and friends outdoors in groups of six, we're going to be rounding down from six and creating a five-a-side team of different characters that you're likely to find at your local pub. Obviously, drinking in excess is no joke, but on a lighter note, the Arsenal Tuesday Club were notorious for having a good time. So from the world of former and current footballers, Tom, in this five-a-side pub characters team, we wanted to know from you, firstly, who is the designated driver? And I suppose what I might mean by that is a safe pair of hands from the football pitch. Well, this is a bit of a strange one for me because I don't drink. Me neither, um, is me, actually. It's been two weeks. So, and, um, so I'm, a, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I don't go to pubs to see mates do you know what I mean that, that's not what I do so um safe pair of hands would be safe hands obviously David Seaman right lovely nice okay so David Seaman's our designated driver um the next person we want to put in this scenario is the person who's buying the first round for the group so I guess we're talking about a generous footballer maybe someone who's good with assists um I, I, I think actually not just good with assists, but actually generous in, in a way that only comes with people really kind of recognising how lucky they are. Um, and so I would say Perry Groves. Felt so honoured to join Arsenal Football Club that that morning he told his wife he'd come shopping with her just so he could go around Tesco wearing his Arsenal tracksuit. Ironically, I think Perry on the pitch was a bit selfish. I think he's been quoted as saying that he would rather have um, scored a goal and like maybe either, maybe lost the game or something like that rather than like not scored and the team win. But Perry's a good lad. He's in the side. Moving on to, well, the Jack the lad. And this would, I suppose, be like the entertainer or, or a wind-up type of character from the football pitch. Um, uh, wind-up character? Um We've had a few, it would have to be Dennis Bergkamp, who I, I, I happen to know was arguably the greatest wind-up merchant in the history of Arsenal football. Um, and particularly, you know, they're making an unlikely pair, but really him and Ray Parler were absolutely thick as thieves when it came to, you know, once the sort of Tuesday club stuff got relegated to the background, but once people got serious uh, uh, around the football club, you know, Burkham and Parler were quite inseparable. And what they really, really shared was love of a wind-up, particularly if it was if Martin Keown was the target. <laughs> that's very funny. And I didn't know that about Burkham. That's interesting. Oh, absolute top, top, top wind-up merchant. Top bloke, actually. And the best player I've ever seen. Yeah, in fairness, even I can admit that. What a player. But um, the next guy in our little pub group is the One Pint Wonder. So I guess we're talking about the opposite of a hard man on the pitch. Someone who's fairly sensible. They're not gonna. They're not gonna go too wild. Um, I think. Um, 
I think you could go, you could go Anders Limpar, actually. Sorry, this is not really a, a one for the kids, this, because obviously I'm, <laughs> I'm going back all the time. But Anders was very much, Anders was kind of, um, there was a fantastic, in, in 1991, there was a fantastic fight at Old Trafford, um, which involved 22 players. No, sorry, 20 players. Um, the only two missing were David Seaman, probably because he couldn't get there. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, too far away. And Anders Limpart, who was actually the guy who had started the fight. So he kind of started the fight and then withdrew and let everybody else get on with it. And that was, you know, the, you stick your two points up your ass, and that, that season of the almost invincibles. Arsenal were docked two points in the wake of that and um, went on to win the league by several, uh, losing only one game along the way. Um, and Anders was sensational that season. Um, and like I say, he was one to... Yeah, and he was. He was very kind of... He was very other Anders. You know, he was other in the sense that he was two-footed, which was something as rare as rocking off shit in, in English football at the time. Actually, it's still as rare as rocking off shit. And then also, you know, he, he, he kind of, he used to do close magic up the back of the coach. Do you know what I mean? On the way back home from away games and stuff, he was, but definitely, um, you know, he was like one stamp on Brian McClare and then away and let everybody else have the big fight. Top man. Yeah, and he was sort of delicate on and off the ball, I suppose. I remember him, well, not from my lifetime, but the footage of, I think, uh, lobbing the keeper from the halfway line. He scored some brilliant goals, Anders Limpar. But our last player to round out this five-a-side team would be, in the pub, the last man standing. And I suppose you could say that this guy, whoever it is, could probably do it on a wet and windy night at Stoke. Uh, Yeah, well, Tony Adams, obviously. Um, But he'd be doing it sober now. Yeah. Well, you can't really argue with that. We've got a pretty decent five-a-side footballing team and probably a good bunch of lads to have around at the pub as well. Yeah, I'm sure they would be, even if they're all Arsenal players. But, Tom, aside from um, your work as an actor, you have authored many books, and in particular one that we want to focus on is one that you, well, you were the ghostwriter for, and it was David Beckham's autobiography, my side could you just tell us yeah. a bit about that experience of ghostwriting a book for such a well one of the most famous footballers of his generation and beyond really yeah i mean that was quite a long time ago in that you know david had a, a very uh, kind of illustrious career after that book um happened that was published in 2003 i think and then a paperback in 2004 um, it was great. Uh, it was great on several counts. Uh, one, it was great because he's a great bloke and more importantly, was completely committed to um, doing the book. He he wanted to do the book. Do you know what I mean? The title kind of explains it, really. You know, I think somebody who who had become so used to narratives being kind of put on him by other people, um, whether that was kind of the Manchester United manager or the media or fans or whoever it was kind of wanted the chance to tell his story, not to, very much not to say, oh, that was wrong, that was wrong, that was wrong, but actually just to tell the story from his point of view. Because what happened to him was fairly remarkable. Um, what happened to him was fairly remarkable for him as an individual. He was also part of a fairly remarkable team, um, had some fairly remarkable experiences with England and then during the year that we were working on the book together um, when we started work the idea was that the book would be published um, after David had signed the contract that would keep him at Manchester United for life by the end of our working together he had signed for Real Madrid so to be that close, that bigger story, and to kind of follow it unfolding was really, really kind of very, uh, very, very interesting. Because um, you did feel like you were kind of inside something rather than outside looking in. Um, and it was also uh, a, a great story to tell um, and to help him tell. You know, it, it really was a good story, not least 
the story of his relationship with Alex Ferguson, um, which I think was, um, you know, if I had to say there's one real kind of heartbeat of the book, it is that relationship. And um, unlike his former manager, David has never been a person to hold grudges. And so that he tells that story and tells it very kind of honestly and tells it very, um, this is what happened. But, you know, I think most of us, if we end up falling out with someone, then we kind of, we, we change the history. We kind of, when we think back, we think about how it is now. And that kind of colours everything that goes before. David, is a, although by the end, you know, because the single most, single most important reason why he left Manchester United was because of the breakdown with, in his relationship with his manager. But when he thinks back about the relationship, it's not coloured by the way it ended at all. So you really do feel like it's kind of unfolding in front of you. This relationship is unfolding. So it was a great story to tell. So, no, all round, a brilliant, brilliant experience. Yeah, it sounds like you really helped him get something off his chest there. And it's nice that you mentioned he was so candid in the first place about the storytelling of the Fergie relationship. But on from one global football presence in Bex to another in EA Sports FIFA. And Tom, you helped create, I believe, both the Journey and Volta narratives in more recent editions of the game. And given that the origins of both of those game modes sort of begin at grassroots level, and with your perspective, Tom, as a super fan rather than somebody from within the professional game, do you think that that was something, that perspective, that made you perfect for the role? Uh, I haven't got the faintest idea. Um, I was not originally... Look, I've um, never been a player, never been a manager, never been a, a, a staff writer, never been a, um, a, a full-time anything other than a freelance broadcaster. Um, so I don't, I'm not an expert in the way that people who do those jobs have never been a director, never been an owner, never, you know. Um, however, I've touched on an awful lot of things and I, I can only assume that that was what EA Sports saw. They thought this guy isn't like in one place. He's got a general idea of how the whole thing hangs together. Um, they did not hire me to help write narrative, though. They, they hired me basically to check narrative for credibility. Um, this was the first episode of the journey. I was initially um, uh, approached and, and um, asked to help. Really, the guys, uh, two guys in particular, um, had already kind of put the, you know, the story mode together. And basically, they just came to me and said, can you just check this, that this is all actually what would happen? It, can you just check that this dialogue actually sounds like how people would talk? You know, because that's another thing. Obviously, I'm an actor. You know what I mean? So I know how lines read. So I, that's how it started, really. And then fairly quickly, I, you know, I got on really well with the guys and I loved what they were trying to do. And um, they are both very kind of, yeah, they're both very talented and very credible people. So what happened was it went from checking for credibility to helping to develop narrative. Um, so quite quickly on the first episode and then from the, the start with the second and third episodes of, of the journey and then the, the couple of episodes of Volta, yeah, then I did become involved at, at an earlier stage in the process. Only to help, do you know what I mean? But, um, and now there, there's also, there's a lot of text on, uh, you know, on-screen text uh, in, I think it's in manager mode. Um, and a lot of that had just been kind of left, it was sort of um, a bit vintage really. So more recently I've been helping just kind of edit and rewrite uh, a lot of that, uh, which was just the perfect lockdown job really I did. Um, I think I rewrote about a quarter of a million words last year. So, um, so that's that's the involvement, really. Well, as someone who's taken Alex Hunter from you know his childhood all the way through all of the the journey modes, personally, I can confirm that it checks out and that you and the guys on that team did a did a good job on 
on the journey. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's interesting that you say that you know you you went on that journey because that that was really the success of the journey. When it comes to numbers, you know, I, I don't know. I think the average completion on a on a a story mode in a, a computer game is about eleven or twelve percent, and the journey was hitting like thirty five percent, thirty five percent completion rate, which was you know which meant yeah people were sticking with it and you know you always think and that's that's why the guys knew they wanted to kind of just be double double sure on credibility um and reality because of course where people drop out well one they drop out if it's boring but two they drop out where there's cracks where there's kind of no nah, that's not the real thing Do you know what I mean and uh, and so kind of i think the the initial um, idea was to make sure that those cracks didn't appear no it's a brilliant feature and i mean no slight on volta or anything like that but you know i'd like to see the journey come back in in one way shape or or form but generally speaking and sort of more recently with the rise of fan tv culture there's a bit of a divide i think people could say between pundits from within the game such as x pros versus fans like yourself voicing their opinions and so Again, Tom, as a football fan, first and foremost, do you have a preference when it comes to consuming that, when it comes to hearing the thoughts of other fans compared to players? Or do you even tend to respect one opinion more than the other? Um, not really. Look, to be honest, modern football, I, I don't know if you'll get what I mean, but modern football is a mile wide and one inch deep. And to be honest, I'm bored with the narratives. I'm bored with the opinions, you know, but that's just me because I'm an old geezer. Do you know what I mean? I, I, ju I just feel like, you know, say my club, what does anybody know about my club? What, what, whose opinion and what, you know, off the back of a newspaper or, you know, off the radio or the television or off YouTube or what? Why would I, I mean, I, I know what I see. I know what I see. I've, you know, I've watched football a long time. I know what I'm seeing. And the narratives that interest me increasingly do not exist anymore in the Premier League because there's a kind of homogeneity that comes with homogeneity of ownership and business models and, you know, even playing style these days. It's, it's so my uh, what I like so um I go and watch I live outside London now I live down at Cotswolds and have done for a long time and obviously I've still got my Arsenal season to go to games blah 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 all that but incre I, I, increasingly I go to watch my local club which is where I started Cheltenham Town and my local club they're currently second in league two I can go down there 10 minutes before the game kicks off pay on the turnstile and go and stand behind the goal and celebrate or moan along with everybody else, which is kind of much closer to my experience of when I started watching Arsenal than watching Arsenal now is. And the real thing with that is Arsenal is this kind of, along with the Premier League, this kind of global thing. Like I say, it's a mile wide and an inch deep. Now, Cheltenham Town, there's only 3,500 people on God's earth who give a toss about Cheltenham Town and they're the 3,500 people who go every week. So I'm interested in their views. I'm interested in their opinion because they go and they watch. They pay their money and they watch. They watch the game live and they go week in, week out. In fact, Three or four hundred of them are mad enough to even go to away games. In fact, I've been known recently to go to away games. Now, that is a conversation I'll have all day long. Most conversations about Premier League football, I have no interest in having. It's like, so, so what? So what? I'm not interested in your point of view. You're probably not interested in mine. Cheltenham Town, on the other hand, I have a fella comes to fix the boiler here at my house. Whenever there's something wrong with it, we have to spend an hour talking about Cheltenham Town before he gets on with any work because he's another one of the 3,500. And if you look 
in the football league, if you look in grassroots football, in lower league football, that's where the stories are. That's where the narratives are. That's where narratives from a storytelling point of view, as opposed to a public relations point of view exist. You know, Cheltenham Town and Forest Green Rovers. So Forest Green are in Nailsworth, which is a village 20 miles from Cheltenham. When we play each other, it's known as El Glossico. We won't be playing each other next season because we're going up and they're staying where they are. But if you look at those two clubs, they are so completely different in everything about them. You've got Cheltenham Town, this old-fashioned club who came out of non-league, slowly, steady, but sure, bunch of honest local businessmen who just try and do the right thing by the club. None of them have got the money to chuck it in. There's one or two kind of local toffs who every now and again have been known over the last 20 or 30 years to put a bit in when the club was in real trouble. But by and large, it's just honest people trying to kind of do their best for a club getting by on gates of between two and a half and three, three and a half thousand. Forest Green Rovers, on the other hand, are run by a guy who's made millions out of green energy and has created the world's most sustainable football club. They are absolutely the world's most, you know, you can only get vegetarian food at their ground. Their shirts are made from recycled material. Do you know what I mean? They, they may well be about to appoint the first female manager in the history of, of English football. So they're completely different. And those are two stories I get. Do you know what I mean? The guy who's managing Cheltenham Town now is the guy who scored the winning goal that 25, 30 years ago got them into the Football League for the very first time. And until recently was their record ever transfer when they sold him to Burnley for £30,000. He spent 15 years, he, he played for Burnley in all four divisions and he's now back managing his hometown club. Now that's a story. That's a story. The stuff about the Premier who cares? Really, who cares? You know, it's just wealthy businessmen and oligarchs and the PR spin that, that comes in their, their wake to try and make what they're doing interesting and to create a narrative for people to follow in what is basically now a television event, not a live event. So why would I listen to anybody? I'm Not because I'm not interested in what in them, I'm not interested in what they're talking about. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm still just about interested in what happens on the pitch when Arsenal play. Okay? One, because I watch it with me boy. And we have a conversation about what's going on. We talk about every decision. We talk about who's playing well, who's not playing well, who we get rid of. What are you going to do about this? What? We have that conversation. I have to tell you, I listen, I watch now Arsenal games with the sound off. Because the only person whose opinion I'm interested in is my sons. I don't, I don't need two geezers chuntering on about a football club that I've watched for 55 years telling me what's going on. Why would I need that? To, repeating endlessly the kind of the accepted narrative about what's going on. I'm not interested. I'm just not interested. I'm interested in my relationship with my son. So me and him will have a chat. Do you know what I mean? He's a referee, as it happens. So we have plenty to say. I'm finally starting just about to win the argument about VAR with him. Just about. But that's been, you know, that's, that gets very heated, that argument. So... Pundits on telly, pundits on YouTube. It's fine. Crack on. Crack on. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not criticizing them or dismissing them. But I'm not their audience. Do you know what I mean? I'm not their audience, which is why I've stopped broadcasting that football. Because if I'm not their audience, then how can I broadcast? I don't think my opinion, to be honest, I don't think my opinion matters um, any more than theirs does. So 
Well, I mean, um, interesting to know about Cheltenham Town as well. Hey, you'd be interested to know about all 72 football league clubs, plus every club in the National League, plus plenty from below that. But seriously, do you care about anybody other than top? Seriously. I, seriously, I, um, I'm a big Exeter City and Bristol City fan on the side. So. Fine. Yeah. Well, then you get it. But what I'm saying, Premier League, do you care? Exeter City doesn't have a great story. I mean, I've been watching Exeter City come to Cheltenham for the best part of 20 years. And this is what I mean about stories. And they had, you know, they had, um, what do you call it, Alex Inglethorpe involved and Steve Perryman involved, which is obviously why there would be a Tottenham connection and all that. And every time they come, you go, oh, wow, they're like, they always try and play. They're always good. You know, always give you a proper game and you always, I, for kind of seven or eight seasons running, I'm going, Exeter will go up this year. Exeter will go up this, go up this year. They play such good. And then they turn up, funny enough, one of the few games I was able to watch this season, they did, just opened up a little bit before Christmas. And the first game I saw this season live was Cheltenham v Exeter. 5-3. You go... Oh, so this is what I've been missing. You know, it's absolutely brilliant. By a mile, the best game of football I've seen. See, absolutely. And what was interesting is there's the narrative. You go, oh, look, they've had a change. Exit are completely different. They're just knocking it long, deciding that we've tried to play football for however long to get out of this bloody division, and it hasn't worked. So now we're just, we're just hit it long. Um, and um, no, that, it's, it's, those are stories. Those are stories. Lee Johnson's time in charge of Bristol City. What a story. What a story. That's where the narratives are. That's where the interest is. And, you know, even as a broadcaster, you know, I was I worked for BBC London for years, worked for TalkSport for years before that. And, you know, really, I, I found more and more, I would kind of, you know, I'd go on the, the, the Saturday afternoon show and we'd do like a phone-in after. I'd be more interested to Millwall and Brentford and Arsenal and Spurs. Do you know what I mean? I've heard it all about Arsenal and Spurs. That's where the stories are. Yeah. So. No, I think I think you're right. There are a lot of a lot of great stories lower down the pyramid. I've, I used to go and watch Exeter City a lot. Had some connections to Bristol City too. But um, let's just talk about Arsenal very quickly before we end. Not a team I like to talk about much, but um, I guess if we're going to focus on um, Current affairs, Arsenal in the semi-final of the Europa League. There's a realistic chance of Champions League football for next season. Well, there sort of is, but everything's a bit screwed up now. But um, what, in general, what, what have you made of Arsenal's season? They're ninth in the league, but you could end the season, in theory, with a trophy. Has this, well, will this be a good season for Arsenal or has it all been a bit of a, a nightmare? What do you think? Well, for me, for me... Um... It's fine. I'll watch Saka and Emil Smith-Rowe all, all day long. That's fine. I'll watch them all day long. Um, I'll watch Kieran Tierney all day long. I'll watch Alex Lacazette all day long. So, no, I've had some fun. There's been some terrible games. There's been some half-decent games. I quite like Arteta. I like him a lot as a player. Um, I think he's he is a genuine enough guy. I think he's, you know, got a plan and uh, whether it will happen or not remains to be seen. I'd say we have a chance of winning the Europa League rather than a realistic chance. Um, you know, it's like Spurs have got a chance of winning the League Cup, haven't they? Um, but, um, <clears throat> but not a realistic chance. Um, so, look, the, t the teams that I kind of loved, <clears throat> that I grew up with, particularly team that won the Fairs Cup in 1970 and the team that did the double on in 1971. Um, and also, as it happens, George Graham's teams in uh, who won the League Cup, won the title in 89 and again in 91. Those teams, if you had to identify, if you had to say what's that team's identity, probably playing beautiful football wasn't part of that identity. What was part of that identity was a completely never-say-die-at-you, great organisation and structure, and half the team being homegrown players. I found plenty to love there. So now, 
I look and I go, Smith Rowe, Saka, who knows, maybe Balogun, maybe Eddie Nketiah will come good. You know, Martinelli's been around. So, you know, we've got him so young, he feels like a homegrown player. Um, do you know what I mean? And, and of course, you see a lad like Kieran Tierney, who absolutely embodies all those values that you grew up admiring in football players. Do you know what I mean? Although he was, he came up homegrown at Celtic, but he embodies all those values that come with being a homegrown player. So I, I think there's, there's plenty to, you know, there's been plenty to enjoy about this team. Uh, there's been plenty that, you know, you put your head in your hands. Uh, obviously, they are at least at least four players from the starting eleven. Never mind the squad away from, you know, being anywhere remotely near challenging for um, the league. So, from that point of view, it's you know, it's frustrating, it's depressing, whatever it is. Uh, but I'm all right with that because I've seen the bad times before, and I've you know, I've seen how. Football is cyclical, and I've seen how. But of course, now football is in the hands of people who don't want football to be cyclical. They want football to stay the same forever. And they've looked, you know, a Super League's been, has always previously been used as a kind of threat, a stick to beat UEFA with and beat the Premier League with. You know, if you don't do what we want, then we'll we'll go off. And um, and you know, UEFA has always caved in, and they you know, destroyed, in my opinion, destroyed what was the European Cup by inserting uh, the group stages, which are a complete waste of time, waste of everybody's time. Um, you know, competition starts in in the knockout stages, obviously. So, you know, those those people just want it to be the same, and suddenly. What has always been used as a stick has become a realistic proposition. And that is because of COVID. Because we've had a year now of football in empty stadiums. And the people who matter now, who are owners and broadcasters, have gone, this works for us. This works for us. They would be perfectly happy, both owners and broadcasters. They come out with all this bollocks about, oh, you know, we miss the fans. It's not the same without the fans. We want you back in the state. Actually, it works for them without fans. It works for them. So it's come up seriously all of a sudden, very quickly. Um, and um, actually, someone said to me, someone said something very wise to me the other day in a completely different context. Said, you know, during a crisis, Reputations aren't made, they're revealed. And that's what's happened. And the Super League is a reputation reveal. We see people now for what they actually are. Take it or leave it. I'm all right. I can go and watch Chelsea Town. Mm. They'll take their chance. Modern football doesn't want people like me. Do you know what I mean? Modern top flight football, we're what they call legacy fans. What they're concerned about is future fans who are the people who follow players more than they follow clubs, um, people whose engagement is online or exclusively via TV. And by and large, the vast majority of them are, are outside the territory in which the particular club um, plays. So they're taking the gamble on them. We'll see if it works, won't we? Mm. Um, like I say, I, I'll just go and watch Sheldon Town. That's fine. And maybe there'll be enough people that go, do you know, I've had it with that. But you never know. We might end up with average gates of 6,000 at Wadden Road instead of 3,500. Well, we'll probably end up with average gates of 4,500 or 5 next season when we're playing in League One. But do you know what I mean? There's every chance that people will... I'm sure I'm not the only one who have fallen out with what modern football is and gone to find something that reminds me of what football was because it's no use me arguing, you know it's no use me complaining i'm not i'm not going to sit here and go oh it's not like it used to be it should go back to what it was before that's like arguing about var mm. var on field is the absolute on field equivalent of what's happening 
in terms of football's infrastructure. The, the moment you decide that football matches are going to be decided not in the stadium, not on the pitch, football matches are going to be decided in a small room, often hundreds of miles away from where the game is taking place. That's where games of football are now being decided. That works for TV. Anybody who goes to a game, it doesn't work at all. In fact, I give it two, three years of watching that and people will go, it's not for me because it's, it's rubbish. It takes the, the, the most thrilling moment, the moment that is like no other feeling you can get anywhere, which is why we go and watch football, part of why we go and watch football anyway, has now been taken away. You cannot celebrate a goal. You, you take, take yesterday's game, Arsenal versus Fulham. I mean, it's ironic, really. Scott Parker making a fuss about Arsenal's equaliser. Arsenal scored in the first half. Ceballos scores with a header. OK. There was not one person in that stadium on Sunday afternoon who thought that goal shouldn't be allowed. There wasn't one appeal. All 22 players on the pitch, plus the entire coaching staffs of both sides, plus the match officials, went, Arsenal scored. It then took, what was it, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes to decide that that's not a goal. Now, my problem is not with the decision. It's a goal or it's not a goal. I haven't got a problem with that. I haven't got a problem with that. If it's the wrong decision, I haven't got a problem with that. Mistakes have always been part of football. What I've got a problem with is I celebrate and then I go, oh, no, no, I can't celebrate. I've got to wait now for a sign in the corner of the stadium, by the way, to say VAR, goal, or VAR, goal disallowed. And that's what I'm supposed to celebrate. No, nah, mate, the game's up. The game's up. And that's another thing. You make sure people know. Get out of the Premier League. You can watch football without VAR. When you score at Cheltenham, you score. And when the opponent scores a completely offside goal or a completely obvious foul in the build-up, it's still a goal. And you can be complaining about it two or three years down the line. And that's part of football. Getting decisions right is not part of football. It's not what football's about. 22 blokes on a pitch. That's what it's about. My lot against your lot. And, you know, you remember the injustices, the mistakes, the disasters, every bit as much as you remember when everything goes your way. So, VAR on the pitch, European Super League off it. I'll take you I guess if the flip side of yeah all this nonsense and all the money in the Premier League is potentially a renaissance for clubs like Cheltenham Town and supporters going and you know following these teams more lower down the league non-league football Sunday league football it's going to be for the best inevitably yeah but that but that's I, I think it's it will be legacy fans mm. quote unquote it'll be people like me older people but I think what they're counting on the European Super League and all them, is, is basically that kind of people like me will just go away. That's fine. They don't want us. You know, we're not part of the plan going forward. Um, and we will be replaced by eyeballs as opposed to physical presence. And the physical presence will then be reserved for the people for whom Arsenal v Burnley doesn't mean anything. But Arsenal versus Barcelona does. Personally, I think they're in for a surprise. Because I tell you, Arsenal versus Barcelona twice a season will get boring a lot more quickly than Arsenal versus Burnley does, as it happens. But that's their gamble to make. And it's not for me, really, to say, because it any more than VAR, it's not going back. It's where it is. Things change. Do you know what I mean? Things change. And so be it. So that's fine. And I think what, you know, what I, I know what I value and I know what I enjoy. So I go and stand 
with me mates behind the goal at Wadden Road, and we have a really good time, particularly a season like this when we should have been standing behind the goal to watch one of the historic seasons in our history. But as it's as it's turned out, none of us could have. But there we are. Well, I think Cheltenham Town might find themselves potentially a new spokesperson for the clubs, let alone a, a fan. Otherwise, maybe that might be a decent place place for us to to leave it today, Tom. But we really do appreciate all of your time. It's been an absolute pleasure having you. I want to say thanks to my co-host, Joe, as ever, and a really special thank you to our guest, Tom Watt. As I said, it's been a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed being our guest. Do you potentially have any upcoming projects or anything else that you might like to plug or share with our listeners? Yeah, yeah, I do have upcoming projects, but no, nothing to share at the moment. But <laughs> you can obviously next book and the next TV series. Um, I think you, I'll, I'll be happy to come back on and blab about them then. Well, we'll be very much looking forward to having you back then. Uh, legacy supporter Tom Watt, you can almost replace legacy supporter with real, real supporter, just actual football supporter, basically at this point. I'm gonna, I, no, I'm not. I'm not criticizing. Every, everybody's, you know. Everybody's welcome to whatever they want to be welcome to. So legacy is right. Real? No, I'm no more real a supporter than you or, or Joe or anybody else. You know, I'm just a supporter. But I'm not, I'm not massively enamoured of the idea of just not being a supporter, but having to just be a customer instead. Mm. To each their own in every walk of life, I suppose, even yeah, when it comes to football as well. Um, but thanks again, Tom. All the best to you and your family and and your friends Uh, on our end of things. If you enjoyed listening to this episode, please do give us a follow on social media and subscribe wherever you're listening to the podcast as well. That's the best way to stay up to date with all of our new content across Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We are at United Mates FP. Check out our website. That's unitedmatesfp.com. And then if you feel like putting some faces to these voices, we're on YouTube. Just look for United Mates Football Podcast. Don't forget to click subscribe while you're at it. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Goodbye.